Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Margaret M. Power, Professor Emerita of History at Illinois Institute of Technology, about the recently published book, Solidarity Across the Americas, the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party and Anti-Imperialism, from UNC Press, a history of one of the key political groups engaged in the struggle for Puerto Rican independence. Solidarity Across the Americas examines the broader impact of this political movement, especially in its fusion of both nationalism and anti-imperialism. Margaret. Thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you for asking me. Of course. And, you know, just a, a brief shout out to the UNC Press. They do uh, re- really great work, some incredible books. And, and you know, we love we love partnering with them and doing doing their books. And uh, and I love meeting their authors. They're always always great. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I grew up in a small town in southwest Pennsylvania and actually This may or may not be relevant, but I grew up more or less as a very conservative, sort of racist Republican type, which I'm not anymore. And um, then I became very interested in politics and really initially interested in Chile. And I'm saying that because it's now going to be the 50th anniversary of the Chilean coup that overthrew Allende and brought Pinochet into power. And why that is directly connected to the book is that because when I was doing research on my first book about right-wing women in Chile is when I started reading documents from different political figures and literary figures in Chile, and they talked about Puerto Rico. And I was really interested in that because prior to becoming um, a graduate student and a professor, I had been and still am a political activist. And I had done a lot of work actually to free the Puerto Rican nationalist prisoners. So that struck a chord with me. And I filed that away somewhere, who knows where, somewhere in the brain. <laughs> and then years came, years later, came back and thought, oh, I wonder if there were other countries like that. So then I started doing the research. And one way reason I'm able to do it, I'm um, as I said, I'm still a political activist. I work very directly with the Puerto Rican um, community here in Chicago and with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center. So because I had such longstanding relationships and contacts with people both here and in Puerto Rico, it helped me set up the initial interviews that I did with the, at that point, surviving nat- members of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. So that's... Um, I guess one could say more, one could say less, but I'll just leave it at that for now. Uh, it, yeah, and as far as far as the the book is concerned, it, you know, as you said, it sounds like it's something that had been rattling around your your brain for a while <laughs> now. Uh, but how how did the actual idea for the book come about? Where you decided like this is going to be something that I'm going to work on? I realized that many people in this country don't know anything about Puerto Rico. Of course, Puerto Ricans in this country know a lot about Puerto Rico, but many other people don't know that much about Puerto Rico. And specifically it came out of my teaching because I always ask my students, do Puerto Ricans need a visa to come to the United States? And somewhere between 60, 70% would either say, of course they do, because in using their language, they're Latino, or I don't know. So there's, well, there's something, they don't know much about Puerto Rico. So I wanted to write a book about Puerto Rico, but I didn't want to write just a history of Puerto Rico. I wanted to write something in which those who supported independence for Puerto Rico were the key protagonists. And so they became the the focal point of the story itself, because I thought it was important to look at U.S. colonialism through the eyes of those who were directly uh, resisting it, because they both understood it in a in a in a very particular way, but also they bore the brunt of, re- brunt of repression directed against them as a result of it. So, before jumping into the actual subject of the book, I was wondering if you just uh, give a little bit of a prehistory. You know, what when did the U.S. first gain control of Puerto Rico, and why? Uh, and then just some of the early roots of Puerto Rican nationality and identity. Puerto Rico was a Spanish colony up until um, 18, 
really 1897 people say 1898 but you could say either really and which point the u.s invaded as part of the broader cuban spanish american war and then the united states acquired puerto rico cuba the philippines those countries have since become independent puerto rico is still a u.s colony and um i'd say Unlike the rest of Latin America, neither Puerto Rico nor Cuba became independent in the 1820s in the fight against Spanish colonialism. There was not the same kind of sentiment for independence within Puerto Rico as there was in other parts of Latin America for a myriad of reasons. The one most concrete demonstration of support for independence occurred in 1868 with a thing called an uprising called the Grito de Lares or the Cry of Lares. And Lares is a small town in the interior, the mountainous interior of Puerto Rico, which had been a hotbed of um, independent sentiment. And actually it's where Lolita Lebron, one of the nationalists who then in 1954 attacked the U.S. Congress and became a prisoner for 25 years. That's where she's from. In fact, she was a beauty queen initially in Lares. <laughs> Um, and so the that movement was squelched, and the um, uprising put down within a matter of days. Um, there were the Spanish had known about the event in it in it um, because somebody had informed on it. So there was not much going on. There were different sectors who supported autonomy, and in fact, and this is a critical point that the Nationalist Party always raised in eighteen ninety seven. The Spanish courts granted Puerto Rico autonomy, meaning Puerto Rico was had self-governance, which means that when the United States invaded Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico and Spain and the United States signed the Paris Peace Treaty, which then turned Puerto Rico over to the United States, the United, Puerto Rico is not a party to that treaty. In fact, the United States did not have the right, nor did Spain have the right, to give Puerto Rico away because Puerto Rico was at that point technically and legally autonomous, which is one of the key arguments the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party has long used, and other independence forces do as well. The Nationalist Party, as such, that I'm talking about in the book, formally constituted itself in 1922, and it did so after the party, which many of them the, those who formed the Nationalist Party had belonged to, a party called the um, Union Party, said that they're going to drop independence from their party platform. And they did so because the, the then U.S.-appointed governor of Puerto Rico said, if you want to maintain a job in the coastration, you have, cannot support independence. So because many of the Union Party leaders had positions or to some degree or another were reliant on U.S. funding, they dropped it. So the Nationalist Party said, okay, we're, we're then we will form our own party. And that's how the Nationalist Party, how and why the Nationalist Party started. Uh, who founded the, the Nationalist Party? What, what was the composition of the early leadership like? The early leadership was primarily men, no, exclusively men um, of European descent. Most of them were professionals, middle class, perhaps lower um, lower upper class, but more middle class professionals. They um, had titles like say a licenciado, meaning they had a college degree or they were lawyers, some were doctors, that kind of strata of society, all educated. And they saw themselves not as sort of, they saw themselves as those who would be capable of leading an independent Puerto Rico, meaning that they saw themselves somewhat as the U.S. counterparts in that they were civilized, educated, Christian, Catholic, of course, men. And that sort of tended to define a lot of the politics of the Nationalist Party during the 1920s, because instead of an out-front confrontation or <clears throat> sort of a direct a military escalation, that did not happen during that period. They, I think they saw themselves as, we are gentlemen. The United States government will, will recognize as such. They will understand that we are not only capable, but we are entitled to rule. The United States government did not see them as capable or entitled to rule because for the United States government, they were Puertans, and as Puerto Ricans, they were inferior. And in addition, the United States 
um, wanted Puerto Rico, I'm going back to your earlier question, the United States wanted Puerto Rico, wanted to control Puerto Rico, because much of the trade in and out of the Caribbean passed right the what's called the Mona Passage, which is on the western coast of Puerto Rico. So if you have Puerto Rico, you are able to control on a lot of the trade passing in and out. And during the late 1800s, early 1900s, much if most of the trades to Latin America was carried on steamships. Puerto Rico also served as a refueling station, and it then served as a military base, military outpost for the United States. So for, for the United States, Puerto Rico was a key beachhead in the Caribbean for its control, not only of other parts of Caribbean, but of the Circum-Caribbean, the whole Northern South America, Central America region. So it was it was great. Hey, we have our own little colony there. We can do what we want with it. And as far as, you know, Puerto Rican nationalism, just in the context of other nationalist movements that were going on around the globe at the time, you know, how, how do you think it compared? In in what sense? In the sense of like, you know, you, you mentioned its leadership uh, was, you know, mostly men of European oh. descent. How did it oh. compare to other uh, Latin American <laughs> nationalist movements? And then, you know, also, you know, across across the the Atlantic, the you know, there's other nationalist movements that were ongoing in the in the wake of of the the, the fall of you know the Austro-Hungarian Empire and you know Italian fascism and national rise of national socialism. Uh, you know, feel free to take it in whatever direction you'd like. Obviously, it's impossible okay. to compare it to every single nationalism sure. that was going on at the time. Okay. Um, well, if you look at the Cuban independence movement, there were actually a lot of the leaders who were of Afro descent who were military generals with Cuban independence struggles. Jose Marti was sort of the most, who's the best known um, leader, probably for most people, of, was much more the equivalent of some of the Nationalist Party leaders, but he was also, um, he, he, was not, he was not the only one. I mean, obviously in the Philippines, the people who led the fight in the Philippines were, um, you know, possibly mixed race or something, but, but, um, throughout Latin America, I'd say that it, it's so varied. Say, if you look at somebody like Sandino, Sandino was more of a sort of peasant background or representative peasant class. He had a whole different hour, outlook. If you look at the leaders like Simon Bolivar, wait, you're not looking that far back. You're looking in the 20th century, you're asking? Okay, yeah, no. yeah, in the tw- but, but in the 20th century. But but I think, uh, you know, it, it would be interesting also just to to look at, at Simon Bolivar just in his significance uh, for for early nationalism in, in Latin America, too. I mean, he was he was part of the of the of the elite in, in Latin America, in Venezuela and in Colombia. I mean, he came out of that. He educated in Europe. He had this whole different conception of um, the nation. The Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, the men of the Nationalist Party, they were not fighters. I have to stress that. that they were not engaged in a military warfare at all. So that puts them in a very different category. They were not taking up arms against the United States. These people, say, in the early 1800s were. If you come up to the nationalist leaders of the early 20th century, few of them were engaged in military warfare. They saw themselves much more um, battling on an ideological, political level. And they saw themselves, I think, as very, very significant. They saw themselves both as, say, whatever their particular nation was, Argentine or Chilean, but they also saw themselves as Latin American. And it was this idea, or Hispanic American, or Ibero-American, which is different people would use different concepts, but the idea is that this isn't us. And I think what happens after Spain is defeated, it's interesting, you see this transition. Up until 1898, Spain was viewed as the danger, as the enemy in for much of Latin America. However, once Spain is defeated, it becomes clear to Latin American nationalists that the United States is the real and present and expanding danger. So at that point, you begin to see people sort of this sort of shift in identity, this, this sort of concept of Hispanic Americans, meaning we are we are united by our ancestry, our Spanish ancestry, which of course one can say, which I discuss in the book, skims over, ignores, doesn't talk about those those of Afro descent, those of those of indigenous descent. So it's a the, some of the much of the early national leader is leadership is very euro euro focused in the definition of themselves. At the same time, they're also talking about themselves 
as part of this new entity called Latin America. Uh, I would love if you talked uh, could talk a little bit about Pedro Albizo uh, Campos and who he was and just what his character was like. Okay, um, he was a completely different leader. His great his grandmother had been a slave. His mother had been a domestic servant. He was of Afro descent on her side. His father, who was a landowner, was of Basque descent, and he was born out of wedlock. Her, his, the parents weren't married, and the father didn't even recognize him until after, after years later. But he says, I didn't recognize you because my wife was still alive. Pedro Albizu Campos, from a very early age, showed incredible intelligence, so much that he got a scholarship first to the University of Vermont and then to Harvard. At Harvard, he became the first Puerto Rican to gain a law degree. And it actually was Pedro Albizu Campos who developed the whole idea of autonomy and that, that Spain's ceding of Puerto Rico to the United States was not legal, so that the whole U.S. colonial regime is an illegal regime. Pedro Albizu Campos then, um, at, when he was at Harvard, he became very much in part of a group called the Cosmopolitan Club, which was a group on campus that brought together people from all over the world. So there were people who were part of the um, Indian liberation struggle. Um, John Reed, if if people know the movie Red, Warren Beatty. Okay, okay, maybe people know from other way, but sometimes they all just throw in a movie because I love movies. Uh, yeah, that I actually, it's <laughs> funny you mentioned that because I actually watched that movie just a few months ago, um, and it's it's a really good movie, really interesting. Uh, okay, but yeah, think, John John Reed, the the journalist, the journalist who uh, who went to right. the Soviet Union. Yeah. Okay. I liked it the first time. I must admit, I didn't like it as much the second time. Oh, well, whatever. Any case. Um, so then <laughs> Pedro Albizu Campos basically comes back. And in one of his first memorable actions, he was, he then joined, he jo joined the union party. Then he joins the nationalist party, becomes the vice president. And there is a, to me, this typifies Albizu Campos. Um, he went to speak on a podium. The podium had those, you know, those little miniature American flags that you see placed it around the podium. He ripped them off one by one, put them, I think, in his pocket and said, we will, we will not, I will not speak at a podium with the American flag. We are Puerto Rican. And right away, it was clear he was asserting Puerto Rican identity, Puerto Rican nationalism. And then um, he went on because he was such an amazing person, he went on to do a trip throughout Latin America. And he first went to the Dominican Republic, then he went to Haiti, then to Cuba, then to Mexico, back to Cuba, to Peru. Now, some people like, Peru, wait, how Peru get in there? When he was at Harvard, his future wife, Lara Meneses, um, was studying at Radcliffe. They met, they married, and she's Peruvian. So because the party itself had very little funds, even though they sent Pedro Albizu Campos on, a, on the trip. He, the Lara Albizus and their two children could not afford to come with them. So she went back to stay with her parents in, in, in Peru. He went to Peru, hoping to go to Argentina, hoping then to travel on to Europe, but the funds weren't there. So they stayed there and then came back on the Panama Canal to Venezuela and then back to Puerto Rico. And I think the the tour had this amazing impact on him and subsequently on the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. A, some of the tour was, I think it, it brought into sharp relief the presence and the danger of U.S. imperialism throughout Latin America. Every place he went, he saw the direct results of it. So, for example, he met with nationalists every place he went, especially the best reception was, say, in places like the Dominican Republic and Cuba and Haiti. But Haiti at that point was still being militarily occupied by the United States. So his the ship he was traveling on pulled into, into Port-au-Prince, the capital, the harbor, the port, and he then got off, made contact with local nationalists. They arranged quickly, they didn't know he was coming exactly. They arranged a banquet for him, and then they hustled him back to the ship because they didn't want the U.S. military to be aware that he was there. And who knows if they were or not. I think there's probably a way to do research and cables from the consul there, which I haven't done. If anybody else wants to do and finds out, I would love to know. Um, 
so then he went to the back to the ship but to me every single place he went he made contact established long-lasting relationships with nationalists and anti-imperialists in these places and many of these places say the dominican republic and cuba especially and haiti set up solidarity committee with puerto rican independence and so these were long-lasting relationships say the one in cuba started in the 1920s, there was still a solidarity committee up in the 1950s. And of course, once the Cuban revolution occurred, then there was massive support from the state level for for Puerto Rican independence. Another thing that you describe is just the uh, the, the flowering of Puerto Rican nationalism, specifically in New York City. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you'd talk about uh, why New York City uh, and, you know, what the Puerto Rican nationalism movement was like there compared to in Puerto Rico. The Puerto Rican nationalist movement started actually in the early 1920s, even though there weren't that many Puerto Ricans there. They um, they they started because I think Puerto Ricans there felt a strong sense of being Puerto Rican. One um, and different Puerto Ricans have described this to me. They went to the United States with the somewhat vision of streets paved with gold, things will be okay. And of course it was freezing cold, New York. I think that's a a story that is well known, but what perhaps not as well known is one, they were shunted into low paying menial jobs and they were treated with a lot of racism. This whole concept, Puerto Rican equals inferiority. Puerto Rican equals children. Puerto Rican equals sort of this whole concept of infantilization of the, of the Puerto Rican population. So I think in response, I think often you have the response, some people then say, I'll try and assimilate, I'll try and be as much Yankee as I can be, as much sort of like the the U.S. as I can be. Other people say, no, I will actually be there for, at this point, assert my own identity as a Puerto Rican, someone who's actually very proud of my culture. And this is this is what happened with a number of Puerto Ricans. And the movement um, intensified in Puerto Rico, sorry, in New York City, which was where, where the la- largest congregation of Puerto Ricans in the United States. That's where they were, working in these low, low-paying meetings menial jobs, but it's also because um, beginning in the 1940s, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but in the 1940s, New York City was was the center of the Communist Party USA. And because the Communist Party USA was part of the Comintern, the Communist International, the Communist International since the 1920s has had a position supporting um, anti-colonialism globally, but also independence for Puerto Rico specifically. So the um, bonds between the Communist Party and the Nationalist Party grew. And there's a particular figure I also like to talk about, Vito Marcantonio. Vito Marcantonio was Italian. I don't think anybody could possibly guess that from his name. Uh-huh. And he was, amongst other things, he was Pedro Albizu Campos' lawyer. He was, um, he was close to perhaps a fellow traveler, but not a member of the Communist Party. And he was responsible for um, building support for the Nationalist Party political prisoners who were in Atlanta, which is a story that I would like to tell in a second if possible. So we're kind of zigzagging. We're not doing this complete chronological thing here, but okay. So um, then he um, they, they work very closely together. And the Puerto Rican community was very, very, very in in New York City, was very supportive of Puerto Rican independence and and of Albizu Campos. So when Albizu Campos was arrested back, this is back in Puerto Rico, in 1937, there were massive demonstrations. When the Ponce massacre happened um, in 1937 again, and I'll say what that was, and then I'll say what the response was. The Nationalist Party in Puerto Rico was wanted to protest the arrest of its leadership. You may ask, why was the leadership arrested? Beginning in the 1930s, Albizu Campos was elected president of the Nationalist Party. Unlike the previous generation of leaders that I discussed, Albizu Campos had a much more confrontational stance. This was after he came back from his tour of Latin America. And I think he realized 
wait, there is not going to be any, let's sit down at a table and just work things out. He said, no. His concept was not so much let's fight it out, but his concept was we cannot expect favors from, from Washington. What we have to build is a strong and militant movement that demands our freedom, that demands our rights. This wasn't so much let's pick up the weapons, although that was sort of, that was in there, but it, it wasn't so much that, it was that we've got to organize the Puerto Rican people and we've got to build national international solidarity, which is part of what the whole point of the trip was um, from 1927 to 1930. And um, so when um, Albizu Campos was the president, it coincided with the depression. The depression had two impacts in Puerto Rico. It made many people in Puerto Rico realize actually things aren't working out so great with the United States. The promises they made to us really aren't happening. We're desperately poor and we're not getting better. And it also increased immigration to the United States. And therefore you had more ties between people in New York City, people here and there in Puerto Rico. So the, the um, Puerto Rican Nationalist Party uh, two members of the Nationalist Party. Wait, let me step back. Sorry. <laughs> it's so complicated. So I'm sorry. I feel like, oh, I'm kind of hopping around here a bit. No, no, no problem. <laughs> it's a problem because I didn't talk about Ireland. That's a problem. I want to talk about the Irish. Anyway, I'll put that on the agenda and come back to it. Um, I skipped. I got all myself off track from Harvard. But OK, back to back to let's finish this part of the story right now. <laughs> um, in in. Um, the Nationalist Party leadership was arrested, accused of having a, having a, assassinated the police chief, which was true, but also um, accused of trying to kill the governor of Puerto Rico. And as a result of the Nationalist Party leadership was brought to trial, the first trial acquitted them. Totally by chance, this North American artist, Rockwell Kent, was in was in Puerto Rico and he was close to the Communist Party but not. He was a very well-known artist in the United States. He was part of the whole deal, the Works Progress Administration. He painted murals all over the United States. So he was a recognized figure. So the governor, the governors up until 1948 were all appointed by the United States, let me just say. And speaking Spanish had absolutely nothing to do with their qualifications being loyal or being a pal with the president. That was much more up there in terms of who got appointed. So um, Rockwell Kent had happened to be invited because he was from the United States and therefore they, the governor and his pals figured, oh, he's one of us. He heard the governor and the the you the attorney general who was there um talking the pros chief prosecutor talking about we've got to get a better jury. That jury just didn't work out. We've got to get and he came up the um the, one of the guys came up with a list as here who should be on the jury to, to try the Puerto Rican, the leadership of the Nationalist Party. And most of those people were on the jury. They were found guilty. The Nationalist Party was found guilty. They were sent to prison in Atlanta at the same time that Earl Browder, the secretary general of the Communist Party, was in two, a couple years later was sent there. They became very close friends. Here are these, these educated people who are all stuck in a prison together. Of course, they're going to become good friends. They have similar politics. They like to read. They like to discuss things. The leadership and Earl Browder got out first. So then Earl Browder and Juan Antonio Corajer, who was the secretary general of the Nationalist Party, worked very closely together in New York City. When Albizu Campos was set to come out, the Nationalist Party and the Communist Party said, we've got to go and protect and defend him once he gets out of jail. The Communist Party sent a Communist Party lawyer to get him out. Albizu Campos, as I said, was of Afro descent. He, therefore, could not travel on the train with Samuel Newberger, who's the Communist Party lawyer, up to New York City. So Samuel Newberger says, I'm going to come up with a plan. I was so excited when I found this interview with Samuel Newberger and hold this whole, heard this whole story. So Samuel Newberger says, okay, here's what we're going to do. He got a couple Communist Party buddies from uh, the Atlanta area. They took Albisu to the train station in Atlanta. Newberger walked through the train station yelling at the top of his lungs, move aside, move aside, move aside. They the crowd cleared. They figured, oh, this is somebody important. We should move aside. And they escorted Albizu onto the train. And because the Pullman, um, the Pullman, um, 
reporters were all African-American, they were not going to say a word. They knew it was wrong. The Communist Party had bought, brought, bought a whole compartment. They put them in the a compartment. They pulled down the shades. The Pullman um, porters brought them food. They made it to New York City. And at that point, then we have both the leadership of the Communist This is um, 1943. Have the leadership of the Communist Party, the leadership of the Nationalist Party, is now in New York City. So they work very close together in support of the Nationalist Party, but also in support of sort of the, the popular front politics of the of the Comintern of the Communist Party, because this is in the height of World War II, which is do everything possible to defeat fascism. So why this is, how this is all connected is there was a very strong Communist Party. There was a very large Puerto Rican community. They worked together, and part of the, what they demanded was independence for Puerto Rico. Going off of that relationship between the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party uh, and and communism, uh, you you talk at length in the book about how Puerto Rican nationalism responded to uh, the intensification uh, of the Cold War. Uh, and I was wondering if you could if you could discuss that. How, how did they respond, and how do they interpret the uh, the growing uh, enmity between uh, the Soviet Union and the United States? Um, the Nationalist Party. I'm not sure what you're referring to. The Nationalist Party actually um, had been asked to initially to in the early 1920s had been asked to form to join the Comintern, the Communist International. Um, but they refused to because they said that we we don't we're trying for independence. We certainly don't want to fall under the control of any other foreign power in this in this case and at that point the Soviet Union. But in terms of the Cold War, okay, I'm not exact. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what you mean. They did the Nationalist Party didn't have that much to do with the Soviet Union. Right, but how did they how did they respond to the to the changing global political situation? Was it just something okay. that yeah. Okay. Um, perhaps I could first start talking about how the United States responded. With, yes, and, absolutely. Okay. Um, the United States came out of World War II, plopped right straight head first into the Cold War, which meant that the United States had to portray itself as the defender of li liberty, the defender of freedom, the supporter of national liberation struggles against big, bad, totalitarian Soviet Union. A little problem, however, was, oops, ooh, we still have a colony, Puerto Rico. Ooh, that's not going to look so good. We've got to do something about that. So the United States government worked very closely and intentionally with the Luis Munoz Marin, the leader of the Popular Democratic Party in Puerto Rico. And between them, they engineered this idea that we are going to say to the world, Puerto Rico is no longer a colony. So they rewrote the Constitution. They had a popular vote. Many people abstained, but the vote won. And they, for the first time, they being Puerto Ricans, elected new governor, uh, Luis Munoz Marin, who then brought into being what's called the Free Associated State, or sometimes called the Commonwealth, which is the status that Puerto Rico currently holds. And if anybody in the audience knows what a free associated state means, please let me know, because really the words mean nothing. How can you be a free and associated and a state? It means... Basically, it means you're still a colony, which is what Puerto Rico is today. And the Nationalist Party thought, wait a minute, if the United States is successful in convincing the world that we're no longer a colony, then the world will stop supporting our demands for independence. So in October 1950, the Nationalist Party launched an uprising in Puerto Rico. The, um, they attacked about seven different towns, um, in, and things were not that well coordinated. They um, accelerated the date. They really didn't have that many weapons. They weren't that they weren't that militarily trained, and they were able to, however, take over the town of Hayuya. And um, the leader at that point was a woman nationalist named Blanca Canales, who walked up to the top of the hotel, the key hotel in Hayuya, which again is a town in the mountainous area took out the Puerto Rican flag, waved the Puerto Rican flag, and um, basically yelled, Viva Puerto Rico Libre, or long live free Puerto Rico. And th this was in October of 1950, uh, October correct? October 1950, yes, totally correct. Um, at that point, an um, U.S. basically said, we've got to put this rebellion down. So U.S. planes, it's interesting if you think about it. Where have U.S. planes bombed U.S. cities? One, 
Puerto Rico, Cayuya, and Utuada, and two, Tulsa. Now, who lives in, the, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, Greenwood, the Black community there? Well, it, in short, the, the place where U.S. planes have bombed have been two non-white areas, Puerto Rico and Greenwood. And I think I think that's highly that's highly significant. And I think it's often passed unnoticed because I think I'm I know a lot of people, people becoming justifiably much more aware of what happened in Greenwood, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and, and the massacre that took place there. But I think we also have to say, well, um, we also have to say, yes, but look where look where the U.S. was using willing to drop bombs. And I think another the other place, of course, I think would be against the MOVE organization in Philadelphia, a Black, a black organization as well. That's where the U.S. Has, has dropped bombs in this country. And maybe there are other places that I'm not familiar with. In any case, in response, all the U.S. media first started saying, oh, this was a Soviet plot, a communist plot, or some even tried to blame it on Juan Perón, the president of Argentina that the U.S. didn't like. Um, and in response, the Nationalist Party of New York City said, look, they're asking uh, the U.S. media all portray this as if it's a civil war, as if it's not Puerto Ricans fighting against the United States. So two Puerto Ricans from New York City bought one-way tickets, went to um, Washington, D.C., and attacked Blair House, which was where um, President um, Truman was staying temporarily. One of them was killed. One of them was wounded. They also um, killed a local police officer. The nat two nationals killed a local police officer. Oscar Collazo, who was survivor, was given the death penalty. And I think this is sort of such a clear indication of how important solidarity is. The Nationalist Party in New York City then instantly began building solidarity with um, Oscar Collazo. The goal was spare the life. Interestingly, in New York City, I talked earlier about the Communist Party. There were also a whole group of pacifists organized out of something called the Harlem Ashram. And it was initially led by two Methodist ministers who had been in India, had supported Indian independence against British colonialism, had been kicked out by the British, came back and started the Harlem Ashram, continued their support for Indian independence, at which point Puerto Ricans in the neighborhood where they live said to them, well, how come you're supporting Indian independence, but you don't support Puerto Rican independence? At which point they realized, oh, wow, they're right. And they became totally dedicated to supporting independence for Puerto Rico, although they were pacifists. And in fact, one of them was in Puerto Rico working closely with the Nationalist Party at the time of the October 1950 uprising was arrested and jailed with the Nationalist Party women. Her name was Ruth Reynolds. And um, at the and actually a good friend of mine, Lisa Matterson, is writing what I know will be a, a wonderful biography of Ruth Reynolds. And in any case, these two, uh, the, the, then they started this sort of co a coalition in, in New York City of Puerto Ricans, of the Communist Party, of sort of different um, liberal leftist people and the uh, Harlem Ashram. At that point, they drew on the decades of solidarity that they had been constructing throughout Latin America. People throughout Latin America passed resolutions, um, sent letters, sent telegrams, set up solidarity committees to say, save the life of Oscar Collazo. Throughout Latin America, this happened. It was so intense that Dean Ackeson, who was then the Secretary of State, sent a memo which um, I was able to find in the Truman Library in Independence, Missouri, um, said that said to Harry Truman, it would be a good idea to save the life. This is not on a moral issue. We are talking about the U.S. government. This is basically, it would look good in terms of Latin America, both because Latin Americans have a, consider people political prisoners and Latin Americans oppose a death penalty. So on, on both levels, they were saying do it, which is why Oscar Collazo's life was saved. And if you think at the exact same time, interestingly enough, the Rosenbergs were not. The Rosenbergs were um, given the death penalty. And interestingly enough, um, uh, Ethel Rosenberg was put in the same prison cell as Rosa Collazo, 
Rosa Collazo, who was married to Oscar Collazo, because the United States government viewed both of them, her as a Jewish communist, uh, Ethel Rosenberg, and um, Rosa Collazo as a Puerto Rican, as, as outsiders, as others, is not really part of the U.S. political body, therefore extremely dangerous, impossible, not really patriotic, and therefore they belong in a cell together. Yeah, and, and the you know the next right after after that section, and you know it's really fascinating. Uh, I would love to know what was going, you know, Truman's thought process in the you know oh, the yeah. commuting uh, Koyaso's uh, sentence. Yeah, but, you know, the, the next thing that you talk about is the attack on on the U.S. Cong- Congress led by Lolita mm-hmm. Lebron in 1954. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd love if you could talk about uh, that event, uh, what occurred, uh, and its and its significance. Um, in 1954. Okay, I had been in support of uh, the freedom of the nationalist prisoners. So uh, my whole thinking had been that um, they carried out this action because they wanted to get U.S. attention and maybe world attention, but I wasn't really thinking along those lines. But in 2006, I interviewed Lolita Lebron, which is, wow, that was one of the greatest things I was able to do. and I said, so why did you attack the U.S. Congress And at that time? And she said, well, we attacked it because the Organization of American States was meeting in Caracas, Venezuela. And we wanted to let people throughout Latin America know that we and other Puerto Ricans did not accept the free associated state. There were still Puerto Ricans who um, who wanted an independent nation. And that helped, that contributed to sort of a mind shift which is why I opened the book with that, um, the, with that, with that incident, because it made me think. Wait a minute, the way I've been thinking about this has been in this sort of binary relationship, Puerto Rico and the United States. The way the nationalists were thinking about it was not at all in this binary way, but in this way of Puerto Rico as part of the as part of the world, and especially Puerto Rico as part of Latin America. So they understood that in order to become independent, Puerto Rico needed the solidarity of Latin America, which is why there was such, why they would send somebody for two and a, two and a half years. And that was sort of just, that wasn't the beginning. That was certainly not the end of solidarity. And for them, a key focus had to be the in the solidarity of other of Latin America. So there, the whole timing of the action was geared to the Congress, to the OAS meeting in Venezuela. When they, they again bought one-way tickets. They thought they would all die. They, like the other two nationals who had attacked the Blair House, were willing to sacrifice their lives for Puerto Rico, for an independent homeland, for an end to U.S. colonialism. When they got there, and this is another thing I learned from the interview, Lolita said um, it was raining, the men were kind of dragging their feet, but she had been, Albizu Campos had named her the commander, the leader of the attack which I think in 1954, it's like, okay, how many people name a woman the leader of an attack? So that I think is also fairly remarkable and noteworthy. They said, "Mm, let's wait till tomorrow, at which point Lolita said, no, 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 I'm not waiting till tomorrow. If you want to wait until tomorrow, you can, I'm going in. So basically, I'd say she sort of gender shamed them is how I think of it. I don't think I use that in the book. I I just thought of that right now. I didn't think of it saying that in the book, but oh, well. Um, And so they went in, they went into the visitor's gallery. In short, we're talking about a U.S. Congress that is very different from U.S. Congress today. I mean, they they went in with pistols, she and her purse. I'm not sure where they, actually, I'm not sure where theirs were. They went to the visitor's gallery. She unfurled the Puerto Rican flag. And just as Blanca Canales had done in 1950, she yelled, Viva Puerto Rico Libre. She shot up at the cupola, meaning her goal, as she said, was I did not come to kill people. I came to sort of cry for, for cry, like shout, demand independence for Puerto Rico. The three men, however, shot down. And um, I'd say they were probably willing to wound or kill people. They did not kill anybody. They killed, They sorry, they wounded some of the congressmen. They were then, three of them were arrested. Uh, one of them made it to the train station where he was apprehended. And if anybody ever wants to look, you can sort of go, you can go on YouTube and sort of nationalists attack the U.S. Congress. And they're different things. But what's really great to see is Lito Lebron and Rafael Canzamaranda talking in, the pre- in their press conferences. 
and um, I think you get a real sense of, of who people were. They're they're amazingly self composed considering they are they are. Um, I think they're probably in shock that they're alive, but they're they're very they're very determined and they're not scared. So and then they were brought to trial. They were convicted on different charges, but the big charge was seditious conspiracy, which is conspiring to overthrow the U.S. government by force, which is um, what what got the heavy, heavy charges. They were sentenced to life, life imprisonment. And they were released in September 1979 by President Jimmy Carter because of the, the incredible international solidarity campaign. And as Lebron said, we went into prison as terrorists. We came out as national heroes. Well, actually, she said, I went in as a terrorist. I came out as a national heroine. <laughs> so I, I think they were they were very, they had they had a horrible, horrible. I was just re-listening to an, another interview with Lolita, not one that I had done. They, she, they didn't receive any visitors in prison for either. I'm sorry, I can't remember something like 11, 17 years. Incredible. They were in such complete isolation. Nobody could write to them in Spanish. You could only write to them in English. These are people, their families were in, in Puerto Rico. People, many of these people did not write in English. They, in short, they were incommunicado for, for, for over, for about a decade minimum. And I'm, I hate to say it. I hate to say it. I mean, I hate that it happened, but she was, she was tortured in prison. She was raped by, by the guards. She was treated as if she was an insane person. She was sent to an insane asylum for, for a while. I mean, they, they had it so horrible. And when I met her, she's just such a wonderful person. She's now, she then became basically a pacifist. She, she did not, she did not support armed struggle after she came out. Um, And she did, though, continue to dedicate herself to the fight for independence from Puerto Rico, but say, for example, in peaceful ways and in speaking out and talking to So after the the, uh, the death of Albizu Campos in 1965, uh, and, and even, you know, looking from, from then up until up until now, what, what is the sort of the... the... The, the state and the legacy of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party. Uh, what, what, where does the the you know the party itself stand, and then just the broader uh, national uh, independence movement stand? Well, the Nationalist Party was pretty debilitated after 1950, and especially after 1954, the two attacks, because there was such massive repression against them. People felt terrified that they knew that if they were associated in any way, shape, or form with the Nationalist Party, they would probably not have a job. They would, it, people would report on them. There was this massive program called Carpetas or Files that were kept on people in Puerto Rico, and the Carpetas then were discovered and released. It's kind of like the Stasi agents in, in East Germany, and people would find out that their neighbor, or even members of their family, people that they had thought had been their friends and loving family members had reported on them. There was this incredible level of repression in Puerto Rico. And on one hand, and on the other hand, I think many people thought the armed actions just are not working. That is not the way to go. As for both of those reasons, I think the Nationalist Party was much weaker. And um, at this point, the independence movement is not in its strongest state. And I think the whole impact of Hurricane Maria probably has had multiple effects on people in Puerto Rico. Some people will say, if we were part of the United States mean state, we would have gotten better treatment, that um, therefore we should become a state. Other people are saying, look at the way they treated us. We can't not rely on the United States. We've got to, say, develop our own agriculture. We've got to become more self-sufficient. And we've not only, we've got, we've got, so much sun in Puerto Rico, we've got to use solar power and not depend on a U.S. electric um, company that comes in and just totally rips us off. Well, right now the company is actually Canadian, but but the point is sort of foreign companies, we've got to develop our own, not only just our own, but our own eco ecological um, in tune with the environment methods to survive. So if push came to shove, I don't know how the vote would go but i think then i think all these questions about so what does independence mean 
I think there'd have to be a real discussion about, so what would it mean for Puerto Rico to become independent? What would be the relationship? Because right now there are more Puerto Ricans in the United States than there are in Puerto Rico. Do Puerto Ricans, if they're living in Puerto Rico and Puerto Rico becomes independent, do they lose their veterans benefits? Do they lose all the federal, um, their retirement plans? What happens? I think, so I think to have that, you'd have to have a goodwill from the U.S. government, goodwill from the Puerto Rican, from the independence movement, which I think you probably would have to say, let's work out a creative relationship where we are independent, but we still maintain a relationship with the United States because realistically, more than half of the population is there and the United States has been the colonial power 125 years. So there are these incredible connections, ties, networks, and incredible dependency. When you go to to Puerto Rico, probably what you see, the number one story you see, I think, is Walgreens. It's it's all it's all over the place. Walgreens, Walgreens, Walgreens. I mean, so all these all these businesses, Burger King, they're all there. It's all you so many U.S. companies that 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 are there. So I think it's it'd be a lot to work out. So I I actually don't know what I can't predict what's going to happen. I don't know if anybody can, but the. Other part of the legacy is that there are places both in Puerto Rico and in New York and in Chicago and other places that are named after the nationalists. I live in Chicago, which is a very, um, there's a very strong pro-nationalist sentiment. So for example, the, um, the, the, a new, a new housing Housing is being built for um, for low income housing and and seniors right right in the Puerto Rican community here. It's being called the Pedro Abizu Campos Housing. The high school that the the alternative high school that the Puerto Rican community has built is a Rafael, uh, the sorry the Pedro Abizu Campos High School, a center. Um, the centers have been called the Rafael Cancel Miranda Center, which he was one of the nationalists who attacked Congress. And same thing in Puerto Rico. You have di- different schools, different streets, parks are named after the nationalists. And same thing in New York City. So that's a legacy. And I think um, there's what I found is there's increased interest in and respect for and understanding of, of the nationalist party. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Obviously, it's it's impossible to predict. You know what what I find so fascinating is seeing uh, the way, especially in the last couple of years, that Puerto Rican culture, music, uh, you know, mm-hmm. everything has just completely yeah. become you know some of the most popular mainstream yeah. uh, in American culture and and yes. world culture. So yes. you know, I'm, I'm sure that that will have a you know an impact down the road uh, with just you know more awareness in America of of the Puerto Rican struggle. Yeah, exactly. And I think because there, as I said, there's so many more Puerto Ricans in the United States, and there are so many Puerto Ricans, um, academics, poets, artists, who are producing work. So they're making their presence so much, much more known. And I think, say, for example, on on the university level, I think there are so many more books that are being written about and therefore hopefully being read by students in universities and colleges and Maybe high schools across the country. That yeah, and 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 you know, one of those books uh, should definitely be Solidarity Across the Americas, uh, because <laughs> you know, it, in addition to just being a history of the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party, it is it is just a great a great historical overview. Uh, it's it's clearly jam packed. I think I saw in the uh, in the acknowledgments that you that you started working on this uh, almost twenty years ago, and and it definitely it definitely shows. Um, well, uh, Margaret, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was it was great speaking with you. Uh, and hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, Caleb. I really enjoyed um, speaking with you.